Amen. Well, good morning, church family. Our passage this morning has been read to us by Ebenezer Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus tells Peter, whose name means rock, he says, on this rock, on the rock of believing that he is the Christ, he will build his church. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how he is going to suffer and die and be buried and then rise again. Jesus makes this promise that he will build his church. Now more than ever, we need a clear a definition, a clear understanding of what the church is and, and who is responsible for building it. You see, the church cannot be stopped. A, a virus can't stop the church. A government can't stop the church. Nothing can stop the church because nothing can stop Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church. Says, Even the gates of hell, whatever spiritual forces try to set themselves up against his church, Jesus says, nothing can stop the church. It is the most powerful force on planet earth. Thanks be to God. That is the reality. That is what all of us are a part of. Jesus has promised to build his church. But what is the church? Is, is the church a, a, a building where Christians gather? Is a church just, just a, a group of believers? If, if two Christians bump into one another at the Costco, is that a church? Because wherever two or three are gathered, is, is a Bible study a church? Is a campus ministry or a summer camp? What is a church? What did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church? Well, it's important for us to get a clear definition of the church. And so we're going to go to the Bible here, and, and we're going to find a, a definition of the church. We're going to look at different illustrations of the church, and then we're going to clarify the mission of the church. So we're in Matthew chapter 16 right now, seeking a definition of the church. Matthew 16 is where we begin because this is the, the first time the word church is mentioned in the New Testament. What does Jesus mean when he uses the word church? The word in Greek is ekklesia. It means assembly or it means called out. The, the subtitle for this series is, is called together. Church called together. That's rooted in the Greek word ekklesia. We are called and we are called as an assembly. We are called together. Now, Jesus makes a promise that the church will be built, but the, the construction begins in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Jesus has already suffered and died and buried and been risen again. He has appeared to his disciples. And, and now the Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. They're all speaking in different languages. It attracts a crowd. Peter gives the first Christian sermon of all time. And in Acts chapter 2, I hope you're turned there in your Bible, look at what Peter says at the conclusion of his sermon. Acts 2, verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. There it is. 
In, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, I will build my church, it was right after Peter said that Jesus is the Christ. Now here is the church being born, the church being established, and what is the declaration? Jesus is the Christ. On this rock, Peter, whose name means rock, is now setting in place the big rock, the cornerstone to build the church. He declares that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen to how the people respond. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is how the church was established. People believed that Jesus was the Christ. They believed that he was crucified for their sins, and they were baptized as a result. That is how they entered into the church. The rock was set in place. Jesus is the Christ. People responded by faith, repentance, and expressed that faith and repentance through baptism. Then we see how the church began to organize themselves in the following verses. Acts 2 verse 41 says, So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They knew who belonged to the church. Who were the ones who were called together. Who was among the ecclesia? It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who were part of the number, those who were part of the church, were people who had been saved. And so the church is established in Acts chapter 2, just as Jesus promised, predicted in Matthew 16, as Peter the rock declared the rock-solid reality that Jesus is the Christ. We're starting with a definition, a biblical definition of the church. The universal church is the global and spiritual assembly of every believer in Christ, past, present, and future. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, the whole church, the universal church. This comes through most clearly in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 23. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, that's the word ecclesia, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We are not physically at Mount Zion. We are not physically in this spiritual assembly. We are, we are, we are present there in a spiritual sense. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 5 and 6, by grace you have been saved and written by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Right now, spiritually, we are in that assembly. Spiritually, we are seated with Christ. 
That's why Paul can say things like he, like he says in Colossians 2.5 or 1 Corinthians 5.3, though I am absent in the body, I am with you in spirit. You see, we're so thankful to have the opportunity to uh, take steps towards regathering as a church family, and we're so thankful for the people who are watching this service right now in our physical building. We're thankful for people who are gathering in their homes, but maybe you're immunocompromised, or maybe you have a loved one who is at a high risk of getting sick because of this virus. You could be encouraged by the reality of the universal church. No matter where you are, you are a part of the universal church, the global and spiritual assembly of all believers from all times and all places, past, present, and future. So the New Testament definitely talks about this concept of the universal church, but it also talks about the local church, the local church. Here's a definition of the local church, and we saw it all throughout the book of Acts. The local church is a body of baptized believers, that's Acts chapter 2, organized under the shepherding care and plurality of elders, that's Acts chapter 14, devoted to the teaching of the word, prayer, that's Acts chapter 2 again, singing, giving, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper, and united together in love and in the mission of making disciples of all nations for the glory of God. You have a universal church, you have a local church. It's important that we establish those things. In in Acts chapter 2, it's as though the universal church and the local church is the same thing. All of the believers in Jesus Christ were together, all 3,000 of them that responded to that first Christian sermon. But then as the church grows, the universal church is expressed through the, the local church in different areas. So that is a biblical definition of the church. It's a, lo- it's a local church. It's also a universal church. So that's the end of point one. We got the definition in place. Now we're going to continue to go through our Bibles. I'm going to put some verses on the screen for you now so you don't have to turn to so many uh, places. We're, we're going to be looking at some biblical illustrations of the church. We've determined a biblical definition of the church, and we're going to be unpacking that definition throughout the course of this series, and we're going to be looking now at the biblical illustrations of the church. Here's the first illustration. It comes right from Matthew 16. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is used, is is described with the illustration of a building. Jesus establishes that. The church is a structure. The church is an an organization. Jesus says, I will build my church. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, where, where, where Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress. These are agricultural, or sorry, these are architectural. I'm getting ahead of myself. These are architectural terms. A pillar is something that holds up a building. A buttress is something that reinforces that pillar. We, we are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You see, a building shows this idea of permanence something that will last, something that is strong. And we are a building and we are a pillar. We are a buttress of 
the truth. The church's job is to give testimony to the unchanging eternal truth of who God is and, and who we are and what our world is all about. We are commanded to speak the truth. We are to be known by the truth. We are a people of the truth. The church is built on the truth that Jesus is the Christ. The, the church is built on the truth of the Word of God. So we are the building. We are, we are something that Christ is building. The, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 10 to 11 says, according to the grace of God giving to, given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Christ. Remember, the rock on which Jesus builds the church is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And Paul here, following along with exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 16, the foundation, the rock, is that Jesus is the Christ. And he goes on in verses 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are that temple. This is a building metaphor, but we're not just any old building. We are built into the temple of the living God. Now, we use in our contemporary language the expression that the body is a temple and that my body, as, a, as the Holy Spirit indwells me, that, that my body is a temple and needs to be treated with a certain degree of, of holiness and respect and reverence. And that is absolutely true and that is biblical. But in 1 Corinthians 3, what's being described here is that we, as we are being built together as the church, we are the temple of the living God. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are living stones being built into this temple and then Peter mixes the metaphor. He turns around, he says, not only are we the stones that are being built in this temple, we are also priests. We're not descendants of Aaron, we're not descendants of Levi, but in Christ we have the privilege of being, of being priests and making sacrifices that are pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the temple of the living God. We are a building. This is the first and primary metaphor of what the church is. You can look up on your own time, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, as additional cross-references. The building emphasizes structure. It emphasizes organization. A building grows by addition. You put one brick on top of the other. And a building must be built on a strong foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus as the Christ is the rock on which the church is built. That's the first illustration 
of the church in the Bible. The second one has, has to do with farming. It comes from the farm. So we've got building and then we've got a, a farm. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which we already looked at, which talked about uh, the church as a temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We are a field. We are, we are a farm that God is growing and cultivating and developing, and it's Him who brings the growth. Farms have crops. Farms also have animals. When Paul was talking to the, the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church of God is the flock of God. We are the sheep. I'm so thankful for Phil Darko and the great message that he shared last week from Psalm 23, the reminder that we are sheep, not just individual sheep, but we are the flock. The church of God is the flock on the farm and God is our shepherd. We also see farming uh, illustrations in Romans chapter 11 verses 17 to 24 with branches being grafted in. And we see in John chapter 15 the vine and the branches. So the building emphasizes the structure, the organization, growth by addition. But on a farm you don't have growth by addition, you have growth by multiplication. When sheep multiply, it's not just one at a time. No, it's, it's, it's multiplication. When crops multiply, it's not just one at a time. We, 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 we see growth in, a, in, in an exponential rate on a farm. Yes, the church is an organization and a structure, but it's also organic. It's also something spiritual. It's also something mysterious. Paul said God gives the growth. That at the end of the day, the, the farmer can do everything they can. They can water, they can till up the soil, they, they can do everything that they think is necessary to produce growth, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's God. There's this mysterious process that is happening underground, and if you try to mess with that, you're going to mess the whole thing up. Same with the church. There are structural and organizational things that we try to do to try to help the church thrive, but at the end of the day, we can't get our hands down in the dirt to watch what is happening. It is mysterious how God brings the growth and how God multiplies. Buildings grow by addition. Farms grow by multiplication. Buildings are above the ground. A lot of what happens on a farm takes place under the ground. Also with the illustration of of a, of a farm, we, we also have an indication to the vulnerability of the church. You see, among the fields, we have weeds. Don't we see that all over the New Testament? The warning about weeds, the, the warning about seed that's cast on the, uh, on the, on the path or that's, that's eaten by the birds or the rocky soil. Farms are vulnerable. Sheep are vulnerable to wolves. That's what Acts chapter 20 is about. And so we need to cultivate, we need to be careful how we are doing church because there's a certain vulnerability that comes across in this illustration. 
And there's also this sense of faith, understanding Jesus is the farmer. He is the one who brings about the growth. So we have the building, we have the farm, and then a thirdly, the third illustration is the body. This is the one that most of us uh, think about, that this idea that the church is the body made up of many members. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 12 says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then he goes on in verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then down in verse 26, I love this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. A local church is a body, and we are all different. We all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. Listen, we all need one another. There is this sense of individuality, but also in, uh, but interdependence at the same time. We are all unique. The hand is not the same as a foot, and yet they are all part of the body. They are all necessary. They are all needed. They are all inseparable and interdependent, while, and, and they're all united while remaining in individual. That's the local church. We also see the body metaphor used to describe the universal church with Christ as the head of the whole church. We see this in Colossians 2.19 and Ephesians 3.6. Another place you could look for the local church would be Romans 12 verses 4 and 5. Again, time won't allow us to hit all of these uh, passages, but the body belongs together. And when we talk about membership, like members of a body, uh, in a sermon in the coming weeks, we'll dive more into that illustration. The church as a body. But here's the reality. You need the church and the church needs you. You need the church, and the church needs you. If you dismember part of your body, you're going to miss that member. And that member will not be able to survive without being attached and connected and united with the body. And again, just like buildings grow and farms grow, bodies grow. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from which the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Bodies grow. You need the church, and the church needs you. We are inseparable and independent, yet still individual. That's the beauty of that illustration. And on Jesus is our head. He's the one who leads and directs. So the church as a body. Next, the church as an embassy. The church as an embassy. Philippians 3 verse 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. So we 
are part of this embassy. We, we, our, our local church is an outpost here in the Mississauga, Brampton, Georgetown, uh, Air, Milton area. But we are an embassy of the universal church. We are an outpost. We represent the universal church to this community here in this geographical location. And we have this role of ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are an embassy. We have this, this sense of mission that we are here as citizens to represent the kingdom of God, to represent the universal church here in this location. But it goes deeper than mission. This idea of citizenship and being an embassy, it affects our identity, that our, our identity is not determined by where we live or, or what country we come from or what our ethnicity is or how much money we make or how much education we may have. Our primary identity is our citizenship in heaven. Our true sense of belonging comes from who we are in Christ, that we are citizens of the kingdom and that Jesus is our king. And that sense of identity and that sense of belonging leads perfectly into the, the final illustration from, uh, from God's word about the church, and that is a family. A family. One time Jesus was teaching in a house, and his brothers and his mother came to speak with him. And then Jesus looked around the room, and he said, you know what? He said, anyone who does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister. That's in Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when he was telling us how to pray, he said, pray our Father. Jesus, as the Son of God, is inviting us to pray to our Father, that his Father is our Father, and that we share a Father together with other brothers and sisters in Christ in the universal church and in the local church. Think about Jesus on the cross as he's suffering and dying. In John chapter 19, he looks to his mother and he looks at the apostle John and he says to his mother, behold your son. And then he looks to, he looks to the apostle John and he says, behold your mother. Jesus wants his people to relate together as a family. The word brothers, which could be translated brothers and sisters, occurs 139 times in the New Testament. This is the most dominant illustration or metaphor for the church, that we are a family, that we are a household, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the same household. We are members of a household. It says the same thing in 1 Timothy 3.15. Jesus has made it possible for us to be born into the family of God. Remember what it says at the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John, who wrote John 1, also wrote 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. 
And so we are. John's like, can you believe it that we are part of God's family? And then he goes on in, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then he takes it a step further. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That as Christians, we are part of this family. And if we have been born of God, we must love those who have also been born of God. Those who are part of the universal church. But particularly those who are part of the local church. That we are to love one another. See, that, I don't have a whole lot of time for people who say, well, I'm a capital C church kind of guy. I don't really like to get committed or become a member of a local church. Listen, you can't love, you can't practically love the universal church and fulfill what's being commanded here in 1 John 5. You must find a local community of believers. You, you can't say that you are committed to the universal church if you are not actually committed to a local church. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, in this great passage where Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and godliness and with godliness with brotherly affection, family love, the love for brothers Scholars that know a lot more about uh, New Testament Greek and Greek in general uh, ha have noted that this verb in all of ancient Greek literature, in all of Koinonia Greek literature, this verb, brotherly affection, is never used to is never used outside of the context of blood-related family members. It's only in the New Testament, this idea of brotherly love. This would have been mind-blowing for uh, people, the early church, to understand that the love that they're supposed to have for their fellow Christians is like that love that is reserved only for family. As a subset of this category of, of a family illustration, we have the, 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 the illustration of marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, which I mentioned at the beginning, Christ loves the church the way husbands love their brides. In fact, the model for how husbands are to love their wives is the way that Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 12. So these are all of the illustrations that the Bible uses to help us understand and appreciate what it means to be the church. And we're going to take this definition and we're going to take these illustrations and over the, over the next several weeks as we go through this series, The Church Called Together, we are going to unpack uh, this in greater detail. So we've looked at the definition, we've looked at illustrations, and then lastly we're going to look at the mission, the biblical mission for the church. What is our mission? Our mission works really in three ways. Upward, inward, and outward. Upward, inward, and outward. The, 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 first, the first part of our mission is upward. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It's the glorification of God. Our, our primary focus must be upward, the glorification of God. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church. 
God is to be glorified in the church. That the church is all about God. It's not, it's not simply about us loving one another. It's not simply about the world and, and reaching out to the world. It's about God. We reach the world because we're about God. We love one another because God loves us. You see, we are his field, but he's the one who brings the growth. We are his sheep, but he's the shepherd. We're the living stones, but he's the cornerstone. He's the foundation on which the building is built. We're the sons and daughters, but God is the father, and Jesus is the ultimate son. We are the body, and he's the head. We are the assembly because he's the one who assembled us. We are called because he's the one who has called us. We are ambassadors and citizens of his kingdom because he is the king. So the primary focus of the church must be the glory of God, and we bring glory to God upward when we love inward. So our focus is the glorification of God upward. Secondly, it's inward. It is the, it is the edification of the saints. Edification is just a fancy word. Sorry, I, I probably should just use something simply. It's, it simply means building up. To edify someone, to, to engage in edification, is to build something up. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, after Paul talks all about the body and love and the spiritual gifts and how is all of this supposed to work together, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. Whatever your gift is, whatever part of the body you are, make it your aim to build up the church, to pour into the lives of other followers of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 verse 28 says, Him we, pro he, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 12 says that we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, speaking the truth in love. And the church is to build itself up in love, that inwardly we are to love one another and build one another up. So the mission of the church is upward and inward and then outward. Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. We are on a mission. So, the mission of the church is upward, the glorification of God. We are the temple. We are the priests. It is inward. We are the family. We are a body. We are connected to one another, and it is outward. We are the embassy. We are citizens who are here to represent Christ's kingdom. And we see this, we see this principle of upward and inward and outward in our mission statement as a church. Uh, Hope Church's mission statement is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Glorify God upward by fulfilling the Great Commission outward in the spirit of the Great Commandment inward. This is what we are called to. This is our mission, and our mission will succeed. The church cannot be stopped. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it because Jesus has promised to build his church. You can't stop the church because you can't stop Jesus. You are loved.